Hey guys, welcome to Thrive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu, and thank you so much for listening on. You could have been anywhere in the world and you decided to spend just a few moments of your precious time and we greatly appreciate it. Here on the podcast, we talk about three things, living a plant-powered lifestyle, enhancing emotional resilience, and creating a thriving mindset. And I interview a range of passionate guests such as physicians, dietitians, coaches, entrepreneurs, and many more. And please join me as I deliver these engaging, informative, and high-valued conversations for you. And just remember the first five seasons of the Thrive Bites podcast can now be found in the new The Chef Doc app, available in your Apple Store and Google Play stores. So what are you waiting for? Come on inside. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Dr. Colin Zunike, the Chef Doc, and we have another great episode for you guys today. I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Olivia Thomas. She is a RDN, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist, and uh, she is doing big in terms of the innovative space, the educational space, really attacking where it needs uh, help and greater support. And that's talking about food as medicine, food access, the ability to deliver good tools and strategies and technology to people that need it the most. And it was a really, really good conversation. You don't want to miss this. And we'll see you guys inside. See ya. Okay, guys. Well, welcome to another episode of Thrive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu. And thank you so much for being here with us. It'll be 2024 at the time of this recording. I could have been anywhere and you decided to spend your precious moments with us today and we greatly appreciate it. So today we have a great, great uh, guest. I am so happy to call her my friend, colleague. You know, we work in different kinds of capacities, but she is awesome and I just wanted to share uh, my audience with her. Her name is Olivia, formerly Weinstein, but Thomas. Uh, she holds a master's registered dietitian and uh, an LD. She is a nutrition innovation and implementation director at Boston Medical Center in Boston. And in this role, she leads a very dynamic teaching kitchen program, revolutionizing how healthcare providers approach uh, nutritional interventions. And she's helping to pioneer culinary medicine by co-creating the innovative eat to treat course for medical trainees and clinicians at Boston University, which I think they just call BU, right, for short, and work as a culinary medicine consultant for Penn State Health and Columbia University. And she does a lot of work impacting on this specific industry, extending to co-chairing on the membership strategic committee of the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's Culinary Medicine Interest Group. In addition to her academic work, she's also an entrepreneur because she has so much free time and she was bored. And she is a co-founder of Rewire Health. And this cutting edge culinary medicine platform simplifies healthy home cooking and expands upon access to teaching kitchens beyond the hospital setting. So without further ado, we're going to bring her on. Please welcome Olivia. Hello. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Did I do your justice by, you know, having you in that way, right? Yes, that was, uh, you could have cut out some things, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Says every humble guest that comes on. Well, thank you so, so much. Are you calling from 
New England? <laughs> yeah. So I'm calling from Pennsylvania. My husband is a neuropsychologist, PhD candidate in his last year of a very long five-year program. Of course and so, he is. Yeah. It is like Man, it's been quite the ride. So he's done this spring and then it's kind of like med school matching where he'll rank his preferences and then they'll match him somewhere. So next time we chat, I might be somewhere else (laughs) in the country, depending where he's placed. (laughs) And so where is he matching into? Like um, you said, you said a PhD? Yeah, in uh, clinical neuropsychology, and he studies mm. traumatic brain injury and is mm. looking to work the sports team or a VA when with veterans. And mm. it could be West Coast, East Coast, down South. We don't really know. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I hope you like sun. Um, so you can definitely come over to my neck of the woods if you're, if you're close. So yeah, I think we have a lot of TBI programs. Yes. His interview today was with Southern California. Um, where was he? San Diego. So San Diego. Like- okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I love it. I love it. Olivia, obviously we know each other through ACLM, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and we work together really helping a lot of audiences understand what food is medicine, how to implement it, how to being able to apply it and use it in various different different forms. So that's just to kind of frame our audience a little bit. But let's kind of start from the beginning and what I like to call the super heroin story, you know, from point A to point B. And so let's start with the basics. Give me some key moments in your life that made you go, I want to set my path on nutrition and why, right? You could have studied anything, you know, why, why being an RD to begin with? Yeah, that's a really good question. I always find these stories really interesting. My dad died when I was eight and I was raised by a single parent with three kids and I'm the oldest and my chores were helping with laundry and helping with kind of the cooking and packing lunches. And so my relationship with food started kind of out of necessity. And I started loving the creativity that comes with food. So I would pack my siblings lunches, and I would get really creative and make sandwiches and funny shapes. And like, I also loved that, like, they had different preferences. So I would like cut carrots for my brother, my sister hated carrots. So I would cut like bell peppers for her. And it just became this like fun thing that I liked to do that was kind of part of my day and kind of a requirement to my family. And over time, <laughs> keep them alive. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think I learned to like it because I kind of had to. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like with most things, like if you do it enough, it kind of becomes a passion or at least we hope. And over time, it became kind of an interest area of mine and a passion of mine. And honestly, I, I'm really hyperactive. I have really poor attention to detail. And so as I was getting further along in my food journey, it became clear I was not a chef. Like I did not have the attention to detail. I always don't follow recipes. And I think what I did find interesting was connecting with people around food and making people happy with food. And so um, more of a like a holistic approach to food became my focus area. And that kind of, yeah, I guess started my passion for nutrition. (laughs) Nice, nice. I'm sure you I'm sure you throw down, you know, only 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 humble people, you know, I'm sure you can beat Bobby Flay. Come on now. (laughs) 
if you ever come to my home for a meal, you're going to be like put to work. I like everyone to cook with me. I like to chat around it. Maybe, you know, I kind of share, share the responsibility and then share the meal together. Is it, is it something that you and your um, husband enjoy doing? Yes, it is. Um, we like to host and we like to cook together. And he's from Southern Texas. So his palate's a little different than mine from Massachusetts, where I originally grew up. So we found some hybrid <laughs> version to our cooking style. Awesome. Awesome. And so, you know, jumping off from there, how did, you know, being more plant forward, how did the, the understanding of, you know, incorporating more plants into your life, you know, became important for you? Did it first start as a something personal? Or was this something where you found along in RD's journey, you said to yourself, oh, you know, this is really interesting. And I want to start implemented and also feel like, you know what, I want to practice what I preach as well. Like, which one was it? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. So the way I learn is by proving everything wrong and challenging everything. And so when I was going through my training to be an RD, I was constantly proving what I was learning wrong. And one of the only things I found to be consistent across research areas was the use of plant foods in wellness. It, every major diet includes it. There's really never a consequence to eating fresh produce or maybe not necessarily fresh, but eating mostly plants and through my own kind of research found the benefits. Also, I personally just really like eating plants just as a, a flavor profile. I think I mm -hmm. love the textures and the colors. And so for me, that's an easy adoption because I already enjoy it. And then it's something that's obtainable for a lot of people, especially adding produce to your meals. Like that's a good place for most people to start in their like health journey. And so it became kind of a obtainable recommendation for my clients and patients I work with. Nice, nice, nice. And what has been like your favorite way of, I guess, conveying this to your patients slash clients? Is it through, you know, lecture style, talk style, or do you actually would love to demonstrate it, you know, with the team? Yeah, culinary medicine. I like people to cook with me, taste. I want them to tell me why they don't like it. Let's problem shoot on how to make it taste better for your specific taste palette. I also like people to taste foods that they think that they don't know what they are and then realize they like it. And then what it is is introduced. I make like a silken tofu mousse um, and I call it pudding and I have people taste it and they're like, wow, this is so good. And they guess the hidden <laughs> ingredient and then no one guesses tofu. And like, that's just like the best moment when you've had someone appreciate a food and then know what's in it. And so that bias of I don't like tofu is kind of not able to join the conversation and you can first just talk about the meal. So always culinary medicine, always tasting, always experiencing. I think that's how people learn to find what they like best. Mm -hmm. You know, do you find it to be more effective, you know, just telling them what it is or you don't, you let them try first and then let them kind of like figure it out? I think it depends on the scenario. I mean, with all care, there's an element of trust. So tricking people is never a goal of mine. But I do think 
having people first smell and taste before disclosing what it is gives the opportunity, like I said, to reduce bias of things that they might think they don't like, but maybe they've just never had it prepared a certain way. So it depends on the intervention. Tofu mousse example, I went to a YMCA and just asked people to try these that, like taste and asked what they thought was in it. And so that in that environment makes sense. But in some of our culinary medicine classes, first we focus on trust and understanding what people like and their fears around, you know, dietary changes. And then we kind of goal set from there. So I think it depends on the environment and who we're working with and what our goals are. Yeah, yeah. So you have a very unique pathway of, you know, from an RD perspective, you know, you focus a lot on nutrition, right? And nutrition you know, of course, you know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it's such an evolving science and to a lot of lay people, very confusing, you know, sometimes we're confused ourselves, right? And so when you have that kind of layer, and then you add on culinary medicine, which we've had a lot of great guests, you know, uh, hop on board, you know, to talk about it, demonstrate it, showcase it, things like that. You know, what are the unique challenges that you've seen over time in terms of nutritional, dietary, lifestyle-wise, to say to yourself, like, you know what, I needed to kind of add another layer, another tool in my toolkit or armamentarium uh, per se, and say to yourself, okay, this is how I'm going to practice. Yeah, I think it's the sustainability of behavior change. I think there were two things that when I first, like early in my career, noticed that were major barriers for people. And the first is like extreme dieting and and changing things so far from what you're used to and trying to adopt things you might not like or that not are not uh, sustainable. So that kind of yo-yo dieting. And especially, as you said, the research is constantly changing. So people are getting new information and making drastic changes constantly. And that's just not a sustainable way of living. And then the second piece is like, cognitive overload like people are just tired they are overwhelmed and now we're asking them to do more and these potentially are sick people these are people who maybe face social determinants of health i mean all people face social determinants of health but those who have greater barriers maybe to food access or housing now we're saying okay manage all of that plus potentially your family and then add this layer of like new foods and ways of eating like it's too much and so I really am passionate about meeting people where they are and using strategies specifically through culinary medicine to make it obtainable. Like maybe for a family, it's opening a can of tomato sauce and like that's a change. And that's still a a big change for some people and focusing on the skills and less on the science and what can a person do every day versus what can they do for a week and then never do Mm. again is where I'm really interested. Yeah, yeah. Can you go over, you know, really briefly, like the social determinants, you know, of health, healthy living, because you had mentioned like access, you know, we know that not just health inequities, but also social economic as well, right? That is scattered all over the country, I think brought reinforced a lot since COVID. And so can you go over what those are? And why do they matter in terms of it being a barrier to someone's um, own health care? Yeah, a great question. So like I said, we all face social barriers to health. Um, it might be from where we live or maybe our lifestyle that we adopted through other influences. 
But some people do face stronger barriers or more challenging barriers. And that can be, you know, not enough money for food. It could be not able to get to a place to buy fresh food or the foods that you like to eat. So this is all under like nutrient insecurity. I work at Boston Medical Center. And so it's the largest safety net hospital in the Northeast. And we work with a lot of people who maybe are in transitional housing or new migrants seeking asylum. And so for some people, it's even like a safe space to store food, maybe a space to prepare food, feeding children. Um, And then of course, there's other societal influences of like information and access. And so we see a lot with migrant families adopting more processed foods when they come to the U.S. because it's affordable. It's easier to, um, you know, buy at a corner store versus getting to a grocery store. And so talking a lot about kind of those challenges and finding a place where people are at and helping with like manageable recommendations. Gotcha. Gotcha. Can you go over, um, so, you know, what you, what we've just talked about, how do you and your professional team are able to address that, right? So an example of like food access, right? So my understanding of access is in anything greater than a mile in terms of like a high quality supermarket is considered, I guess, poor access, right? So something like that. So how do you address these things as uh, you and your team? Yeah, so in at BMC, we do use a social determinants of health screener where we screen using the vital hunger sign tool to help identify food insecurity in like an acute setting. But then also we ask like how far away is your local grocery store? Do you have access to transportation, ability? Like are you able to access things, uh, get yourself there, have a loved one take you there? So in the hospital setting, we do it as a routine screening tool. And then all of our classes and and counseling are really tailored to those with the lowest access. So even if you do have things, we talked in every class what it would look like without a kitchen, different opportunities for more resources, more food support. Like we even have resources where we can help buy a refrigerator for you if you need it. Mm. Um, The organization called Project Bread. Uh, So we can help screen like even in our group classes. And then um, on the technology side, our technology actually adapts to that information. So if you don't have a refrigerator, you're not given recipes or information related to that piece of equipment. And it's also delivered in preferred languages. So the technology is one way we were able to kind of scale our resources to be more personalized to an individual's need based on the foods they have available that they like to eat and then the equipment Mm. they have. Um, which are all things they can change as people change, but at least in the moment, it's tailored to their specific need. Oh, wow. So basically, they input information of like where they're at, how far they are, what kind of access they have to things. And then you and your team um, and technology are able to kind of figure out what is con- what is available to them and and or what can we actually bring to the forefront for them? Did I yeah. get that right? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. So here's a a follow-up question is, do other hospital systems have something similar? And, you know, is this something that's replicable, you know, to, to, you know, for other systems? Because it sounds very innovative, hence you having that role. It sounds very innovative. So, you know, and if not, why not? Yeah, so screening for social need is now becoming a requirement within many states and under CMS. So many, 
institutions are adopting the practice of screening where there's still challenges is the closed loop. So great, you've screened someone, what do you refer them to and how do you collect data on utilization and efficacy? And we're still figuring out some of those things too. So if you are an institution that is implementing um, a screener, you're in good company with trying to figure out these big challenges. Um, But allowing for group classes is a great way to do that because it's both um, reimbursable and it provides a lot of opportunity for personalization. So adding a culinary medicine class kind of to your service is one way to help capture some of those people who are looking for more education around maybe food management, storage, things like that. And then the technology side is something that you can use. Uh, so Rewire Health is the name of the company, and it's a digital platform that uses AI to personalize nutrition uh, resources and information. And so that we're working with about six health systems currently. Hey, guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Dr. Colin Zhu, and thank you so much for hopping on to this week's episode. Guys, it's 2024. What is your intention for this year? Who do you want to become and how do you want to feel? Some of the things that you might be you know, looking to do is to lose weight. Some of you guys want to get out of your family history and genetics and not play victim to your medical and health destiny. Well, I'm here to tell you that uh, it's very, very important to kind of look at some facts and figures. For weight loss, 71% of Americans are overweight and 40% are considered and classified as obese. And these numbers are continuously rising. A lot of these are associated with a lot of medical issues, arthritis, gallstone issues, heart disease, cholesterol, diabetes, cancer, um, and the list goes on. And also having and carrying extra weight increases your risk for COVID. Also, you know, in terms of chronic disease, 60% of Americans carry one chronic disease, 40% two or more. Whenever I get a patient, it's usually a laundry list of medications that they are taking at the same time. Guys, if you are looking for a different and alternative solution, I've created a solution for you guys, and that's in the form of group coaching. If you want to be coached by us, Dr. Zhu, and our team members, um, me and my team, I've set up a beautiful, beautiful 12-week, three-month program that's going to be led by your own respective group coach, also led by me, me teaching you expert classes, and we teach you on what to eat, how to shop, what recipes to go for, where to navigate the supermarket, your pantry, your kitchen, and learning all about sustainable strategies on losing weight and preventing chronic disease. So if you want to learn more, click on the link below, and we would love to set up a breakthrough call with you guys to see if we are a mutual fit. And I want to be able to cheerlead and advocate you guys and be a support for your wellness journey. So click on the link, schedule a call. We'll see you guys on the next one and enjoy the rest of this episode. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. Nice, nice, nice. Before we hop on to the the 
technology part of it. What has been the feedback from people being able to partake in these programs uh, for you to be able to screen them, intake them, and then being able to like help them out? What has been their feedback? And do you feel like there's been progress, right? And if not, you know, can we scale? Can you do more? You know, how can we pivot? Things like that. Yeah. So I did a 1500 person survey and then I ran focus group with 60, well, multiple focus groups, but a total of 60 patients to understand how our current solutions are matching need and preference appropriateness. And overall, people love food. So any service that provided additional food, especially when they got to choose what the foods were, was really highly valued. And then also the group setting. So people liked connecting with other people, managing similar things, and they did not like hearing from the dietitian. They wanted to hear from others. Um, so, which is good information. And oh, interesting. Yeah. Super interesting. Really? Because you, because you would, you would think that you would think that in a group setting, because I have experience with running group coaching, uh, classes as well. You would think that people are a little bit, you know, you have some people that are more shy, right. And maybe someone that's not as, uh, wanting to share, right. But you have the opposite effect where people love it. Right. Yeah. And we definitely have certain populations that do love hearing from a healthcare provider. And so we do shared medical appointments for weight management, and that's co-facilitated by a dietitian and physician. And having the the dual representation is really important. People love that their doctor's there, but they also love that there is the nutrition person also available. But this specific was for people with diabetes. And I think Chronic illness comes with so many life challenges. And so hearing from someone who has not personally experienced what it's like to manage diabetes, I think discouraged the validity of the information. Whereas when I heard from peers who every day are managing their blood sugar and using an insulin pump, it's a very different learning environment. And so for those classes, we've done a reverse classroom. So now Instead of didactic learning, it's more reverse classroom where it's support group style and the healthcare provider, the dietitian is really more just there to make sure what's being said is appropriate and no one's being advised to like start drinking like some crazy juice. And other than that, they're not speaking much. And that might be the best solution for some some groups of people. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, because there's a lot to say. There's a, there's a lot of power from being able from the patient participant point of view to kind of lead and direct their own healthcare, right? And that's how concepts of coaching styles, you know, work very well. And, you know, really for us, the provider, pr practitioner, what have you, to kind of fall back a little bit to be more of the facilitator and be like, okay, well, you know, everyone in the sandbox play nice, you know, type, type of deal. Yeah. And making sure the information that's shared is not like fake news. It's all like, you know, scientifically supported evidence-based information. And we can kind of like, like redirect the conversation to say, to validate someone's experience, but also suggesting what is like evidence-based versus maybe something that's not, but just worked for this person. I do have to share another um, <laughs> finding from our research was that most people hate vegetables. And I just thought that was like, so funny with almost every response, the biggest barrier was a dislike for vegetables and the favorite vegetables out of any of them were potatoes and corn. Potatoes, of 
so basically everything we subsidize. Yeah, exactly. I was like, well, okay, I get it now. And so I think that's important. So when you asked me my personal story, I talked about, yes, the science supports eating a plant-based diet kind of across camps of thought. That's just kind of widely understood. And the other piece was that I like it. I grew up with a parent who did have vegetables in the house. We were made to eat them. I learned to like them. And that's something that not everyone has the privilege of, of experiencing in. And so that's another need for culinary medicine. Like, great. I hear that you hate all vegetables, but have you tried them, like roasted with like olive oil and all these great spices? Or have you tried them like right in a tomato sauce or a salsa? Like, let's try different mechanisms to see if there is one way that you might like them better. Yeah, and- yeah, for sure. No, I I mean, we we get the same thing as well, you know, through the various avenues that I've taught and led as well. And yeah, it's like, hate is such a strong word. So it's kind of like, you know, it's like, what do they do to you? Um, But it's really the exposure. I think I read somewhere where, you know, to really have good, healthy, diverse microbiome, right? Because, you know, gut health is a very important topic and trending movement um, and science that we're going in to have like a really good microbiome. It's really plant diversity. Mm -hmm. And what I learned is that there's actually around 300,000 different varieties of plants that are actually edible on planet earth. But the average American actually eats about 200. So it's like, it was really eye opening. What kind of eye openers or light bulb moments, you know, in general, like, give me your top three that you've, uh, you know, received like over time through the innovations that you've implemented. So do you mean in like the nutrition science or just people's adoption of kind of plant-based eating? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah, I, I think when you tell people to eat half a plate of vegetables, they think it means salad. And so then they respond saying, I hate vegetables. But when you take time to talk about what that could mean. Like I gave the example of tomato sauce for that. For a lot of people, that's like mind blowing that like Mm -hmm. adding tomato sauce with like onions and celery and carrots, which they already use to make their sauce counts. They're like, Mm -hmm. whoa, like I didn't realize that all of these other options, I thought it meant I had to have a side salad with like crappy dressing or something. So I think like, showing how it can be applied to many different types of food really opens up minds and also letting people tell you that. So I always ask the question, like, what do you eat as a, you know, as a vegetable, like during your meals and they're like nothing, or sometimes they have salad. And then I do more digging into like, well, what are your sauces like, or what are other sauces? And a lot of times, and especially cultural foods, people are already eating a lot of vegetables. You just have mm-hmm, to put mm-hmm. the forefront and understanding. So that's an aha moment. Another one, I was I was teaching a class and I had, so currently most of my, my work is more implementation research, but when I first started out, I was teaching a lot. And one of my first classes, I a woman like shook my hand at the end of the class and I felt her hand and it was really, really, really rough. And mm. it was like an aha moment of this person has worked so hard and I don't know what she did for a living, but I could just feel mm. from the texture of her hand that it was something hands-on. Calluses. Calluses. Yeah, like he was working really hard and it just gave me this sense of guilt of like, I'm telling this poor person, like this person who's doing so much work and trying so hard to like do more work. And it like uh. reversed my thinking of, okay, well, how do I make this easier for this person? Like this person already is doing a lot. 
How do I make their life mm. easier instead of harder? And that really opened my eyes to more kind of goal setting and thinking about nutrition as a spectrum and starting where you can and then working your way towards your goal of whatever that might be. And for me, it gave me a little bit more flexibility in my counseling strategies and understanding mm. of what the power of my recommendation has on a person. Mm. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. We love to learn, right? And we can't learn if we don't have, you know, something that's challenged, right? You said it in the beginning of the of the of the session of you want to prove everything wrong, right? So I think having that open mindedness, that uh, having that skeptability, right, and that willingness to kind of like push it a little bit is cool. And I'm glad that you're, you know, uh, humble enough to say like, huh, you know, I never you know, be able to see, you know, my clientele like that before, you know, and it made me, you know, add another layer of empathy and compassion, you know, which I think are just as important, if not more important than the knowledge that we share with one another. Absolutely. Let's shift gears to um, your, you're also an entrepreneur, right? So tell me, tell me a little bit more about, you know, why was this important to set yourself on that path, right? Most of the dietitian, dietitians that I meet, very straight lace, sometimes very type A, and I love them to death, but they very organized, very structured. An entrepreneur, and I'm also an entrepreneur, has the you know, necessity of being able to be flexible and be able to be you know, a resilient. Like that's our core you know, skill set is to be able to figure out, you know, and they're more problem solvers, right, at the core of an entrepreneur, right? Why was this important to you, um, you know, to kind of set on that path? You know, why, what was the, the goal with this? Yeah, so I guess I'll answer first personally and then kind of professionally. Personally, I think to your point, I've always practiced resiliency. And so that's actually an area I feel really comfortable in. I've paid for my education from the beginning. I've worked as a nanny. I've worked as a homemade. I've worked as a dishwasher. I've worked as a waitress. I've worked as a line chef. And so I've always held on to a dream, but then taken a path like this to try to get myself there. And so I'm very comfortable doing that. And I think mm. not everyone is, but I, I, I know what it's like to work 12 jobs. And I also know what it's like to work doing something different to support another goal. And so mm. for me, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm very comfortable there. And professionally, I was watching like our classes and, and this happening like within the healthcare system. And what I realized people needed more touch points. So learning doesn't happen coming to a class for time learning happens what you're when you're doing something daily. And so I was really interested in how I could build something that would be additional touch points to enhance kind of the clinical care. And again, that would have to look really different for different people because what someone could do daily is going to look really different depending on who you are, what you are, what are you doing, your family size. And so I became obsessed with that concept of, okay, well, how do I make this a repeatable behavior? And then my sister also in healthcare, but she works more in medical devices and kind of the commercialization side of things. Uh, she was frustrated with like uh, big pharma and med devices <laughs> at the time. And so we came together, built a business plan and then participated in a pitch competition and we ended up winning. And so we were like thinking about building a business, like maybe this could be something. And then they gave us money to start one. And we're like, okay, I guess we're, <laughs> we're really doing this. And so now we're three years in, 
and we've done a full fundraise and we have an operating product. So we've gotten somewhere. Nice. Yeah. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. And is it that that technology you were talking about but before about screening and being able to figure out, you know, can you give me a little bit more elaboration? Yeah. So it's not a screening tool because there's already so many wonderful companies doing that, but our technology uses that information to personalize culinary medicine content to an individual. So it builds recipes based on the foods you like and have using the equipment you have, um, and then is providing the language that you prefer to speak. And then offers multimodal education tools from like written directions to videos. And then we collect behavior data around learned skills. So it's very niche. It's very culinary medicine focused, but it's the exact tool that I felt I needed to like do my job better. So <laughs> that's awesome. And is it, how is it, um, and it's made available to everyone or is it like a certain population or demographic? Yeah, it's to everyone. It is a business, a B2B company. So business to business company, individuals wouldn't download it. It would be through a partnership with a health system or a third party payer, like an insurer or even in a private practice setting. And then we also do integration so we can live within your technology. And it's not, it's for every, everyone likes to eat things that are easy to make and quick to buy. And so you don't have to be facing major obstacles to food access to enjoy it. It's really kind of for everyone. Mm, awesome. Awesome. Let's switch gears. You know, I'm looking at time and, uh, you know, definitely want to touch point on, you know, from an RD's perspective and, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective and this beautiful combination that you've been able to marry. Tell me, you know, in terms of your colleagues, you know, the route that they've taken in terms of the conventional side and the traditional side that you've decided, you know, looking upon it and spent time in and deciding, hey, you know, let me do something different. Let me kind of veer off. You just, you know, went like this, right? And I get the same thing where, you know, how did you arrive to the spot? And it's like, it's as straightforward as a plate of spaghetti, right? Yeah. It just wasn't straightforward. So my question to you is that, you know, for others that are listening that are, you know, in the healthcare space, entrepreneurially, nutritionally, like, what would you say to them in terms of, you know, to create more impact, right? Is it to, you know, find ways to adapt better? Is there finding ways to increase your resiliency? Is it to go into entrepreneur? Like, what would you say to others that, okay, have established these types of traditional pathways are, and then are deciding themselves, and what, what, what more can I do? You know, what would you say to them? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think it's two, or my answer, I guess, is twofold. I think imposter syndrome prevents a lot of us from feeling that we're the right people or that we can do things that, you know, we think we can't. And the reality is like, we're all the same. Like even people in the White House making decisions are all just humans making decisions with the best information that they possibly can. And so if you mm. jump into something, which I urge you to do, just know you can ask for help. You can talk to colleagues or experts on topics, but don't think anything is kind of above your ability, I would say jump in and figure it out. And I think there's like a how I built this on NPR, but they gave the analogy of like, jumping off of a plane and building your parachute as you're falling. Like that's most of my life. Like I have no idea what I'm doing half the time and I just jump and then I'm like, okay, well, let's figure this out as we go. And as long as you're kind and honest and use your network, like you'll figure it out. It's, you know, it's 
preventing, like not asking for help or not using your network is where you do get in trouble. So take the chance, do the thing. And then I think it is persistence. And I I would love to hear more about your story, Colin, but I've been at it for a long time and I will probably Mm -hmm. continue doing it and it's evolving and growing and changing, but Mm -hmm. I've been on the same path for a long time. And so I think being persistent and just working towards your goal, like you'll get there. It probably won't be in a year. It probably won't be five years and your goal will look a lot different than when you started. But as long as you're heading somewhere, um, and you don't sway, uh, you'll get yeah. there, whatever it looks like. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm happy that you're doing it with your sister. I think that's really, really cool. And not many people can actually mix family with business, right? So to be able to do that with your sibling is really cool. I have a younger sister and we kind of work differently. We do know where we're strong in and we also know where we're not you know, strong together in, right? So as siblings, we have that unique relationship. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I've been an entrepreneur for like, you know, 12 going on 13 years. And, you know, the chef doc is seven years now, you know, this January, which is like crazy to say. So I totally understand what you mean about, you know, that is probably one of the best advices is to just don't give up. You know, if this is like what you truly you know, would have blood, sweat and tears for, and you would rather not do anything else. It's like, it's worth continuing for, you know, it's, it's so worth it when you kind of look back. Yeah, absolutely. So with that in mind, are there anything that you would like to share with the audience? Um, Anything that you are currently have going on in the first quarter of the year promoting, like what, what what would you like to share with us today? So I guess a, a, If you're listening and you're interested in culinary medicine, I think going to our MIG meetings, uh, we have them every six weeks and Collins are fearless leader. And I think it's evolving itself and it's becoming more of a tool for people, which is exciting to see. So join our our MIG if you are an ACLM member and we would love to see you there. If you're interested in the technology, Rewire Health check us out, check out the technology. I'm happy just to talk to you about it. We do a lot of like research partnerships and things like that. So happy to talk about research and how it can be used there. And then if personally you're, especially RDs, because I feel like, as you said, it's less uh, common for RDs to take on entrepreneurship. But if you're an RD listening and interested, I would love to talk to you and find ways Mm -hmm. I can support you and kind of your personal goals and not to disclude DOs and MDs, but I think uh, you can go to Colin. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for volunteering me. (laughs) (laughs) I actually do have someone of mine that's, uh, you know, a graduate in RD. I would love to send your way. But yeah, thank you for for sharing that and being open, just being, you know, a, a future fellow colleague and mentor, you know, because like you said, it's really, at the end of the day, it's, not just behavior change, right? It's really, you know, what is generally missing from, you know, American society where we pay so much and yet we're so low in terms of health outcomes. And what I deduced it is really three things, you know, just not being in the correct environment, not having the support system, right? And not being immersed in the correct, you know, community, you know, where we're fostering each other's growth. 
right? And, um, you know, when you compare us to like the blue zones, you know, that's really the biggest differences, you know, like we could, we have the same food, we have the same access to like, you know, I mean, they don't even have, you know, gyms and 24 hour fitness and LA fitness and all this, right? Like they're, they just use their own dirt roads, right? They use mountains, right? They use steps, you know, and hills. Um, so like, what are the differences? And so, you know, so again, I appreciate you. Thank you for sharing your time and, you know, just doing the awesome work that you do. Thank you to you as well. And yeah, I think stress is the thing we all can work the most on and the best way to reduce stress, right, is through connection and, and connecting with community. So I hear you. Right <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, with that in mind, guys, thank you so much for watching another episode of Thrive Us Podcast. If you like this, uh, please like, share, and subscribe. And if you feel like this is a benefit for someone else, please let them know. And until then, please say goodbye to Olivia. Bye. <laughs> hey, guys, we hope you enjoy that episode. If you like that, please like, comment, and subscribe. And uh, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And if you felt that this was a benefit for someone else, please let them know. And also remember that the first five seasons, 150 episodes, now can be seen and heard on our new The Chef Doc app. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating and we greatly appreciate it. So, and we'll see you on the next one.